Welcome to the Field Trip Podcast. My name is Brent Terhune. Thanks for being here. If you're a seasoned listener, you've listened to past episodes before, I can't thank you enough. And if you're a new listener, who sent you? I got, just picture it. Right now I have my hands on your collar, push it up against the wall. I need to know who sent you. That's a little overdramatic and I apologize. You're probably here because you saw one of my videos uh, on any of the social media networks. So thanks for watching that. Thanks for liking and sharing. Thanks for the positive comments and the negative ones because those are just as fun as well. Uh, but either way, thanks for being here. Thanks for picking up that merch at brentcomedy.com. That always helps uh, the cause. And the cause is me, I guess, sitting here talking to you, apparently. Uh, either way, thanks for being here. Um, today's episode is the Blues Brothers movie with my friend Jason Nicholson. And it's kind of a continuation of another episode I did called SNL Movies with my friend Isaac Lanfert. He was on that episode to help promote his album called Live at the White Rabbit Cabaret, and that album has since come out. I've listened to it. It's made me laugh, and it's available on all the streaming platforms right now. So go back and listen to that one if you want to, too. It's called SNL Movies. But this one is the Blues Brothers movie with my friend Jason Nicholson. So I'm just going to shut up about the movie and cue that music, and then we're going to talk about that movie. Thanks for being here. That's right. Jason Nicholson. I've probably known you maybe eight years. That, that's I was being facetious, but it feels like we've known each other for decades. Sometimes we finish each other's... Sentences. And sandwiches. Uh, and sandwiches. <laughs> we're gross like that. Uh <laughs> But Jason, to put it in context, usually my guests are comedians. What what do you call yourself? Because you are not a stand up comedian. No, I would. Uh, I would just say I'm a personality. I guess you're, you uh, are. You're an influencer. Yeah. Ooh, an influencer. Getting uh, fancy. You, I just know you have. Uh, I think we met when I was doing comedy, and that you knew me from Bob and Tom. So we and then but we kind of hit it off because we like the same things. We love the Blues Brothers. Uh, yep. We love rest pro wrestling. Uh, so yeah, we just kind of hit it off right away. And I and I you're sitting in your living room. I can see you via Skype, and I know you have the Blues Brothers license plate in your living room, don't you? Still, I I do, I do. Uh, it's hanging right over my turntable. So yeah, so that's how much you love uh, the Blues Brothers, and this is kind of a follow-up to the SNL episode, which you texted me and said you listened to, and uh, I had Isaac on because he knows way more about that than I do, and you said you were like, oh, because we couldn't think of something, and you were like, oh, I know this person's name or whatever it was when you were listening. Yep. Um, so do you have any uh, thoughts on SNL movies in general? I can go through the list and, you know, if you if you wanted to touch on any of them, but, the you know, Blues Brothers, Wayne's World, Coneheads, uh, it's Pat Stewart saves his family, a night at the Roxbury or Burry, how it's spelled uh, superstar ladies, man, McGruber. And I think I missed Wayne's world too. Yeah. I I'm of the opinion that I think Wayne's world two is a better movie than the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really like the story on the second one. That's not to take anything away from the first one, because you got to have the first one. Yeah. But I think the second one is a better movie. So um, you're saying it's the uh, Dark Knight. Of, yes. Yes. There <laughs> of you comedies. Go. Yeah. Um, and then if anybody out there had the old DVD set that 
came out with both of them in there, mm-hmm. the DVD menus on those were amazing because they were the old TV Guide channel. Remember when you used to have to go to like channel two or whatever, and it would yeah. scroll. Mm-hmm. But you could go through there and select things, and like it was like the solid gold dancers, and if you hit it and hit play, they had like a two minute clip of like the <laughs> solid gold dancers. It was an amazing feature, and like I had my friends like going, "Hey, put the Wayne's World thing in so we can show so and so." Like, but I mean, you know, uh, DVD features were yeah. an entertainment factor. Well, so. that's two different things. Uh, that's a lot of work into a DVD menu, <laughs> right? And it's also the TV Guide channel, which you know, it was half a screen, and then. Really, all I got to use it for, it's kind of like those those school closing things where they used to be on the bottom of the TV where if you miss your school, now you got to wait till your channel comes back on. But more so, I got to see what I was missing. Was they had all like the premium channels, which we didn't have, some of them. Yep. So that I was like, oh, I'm missing. That's clearly a Naked Lady show, and I can't watch that. So on my cable, if you switched... Like back and forth between the TV Guide channel and just another channel. If you would mm-hmm. hit it real quick, that was the Green Boob Lady channel. Oh, but yeah. But you could see it sometimes if you went back <laughs> and forth. And especially, I'm not saying that me and my brother did this, but at 11 o'clock, the pay per view channel would switch to the Spice channel. Oh. And for whatever reason, the first like five minutes were crystal clear, not scrambled. <laughs> And we had discovered there was a little button on the remote that would do the same thing instead of going back and forth on the channel. Mm-hmm. So you could watch it for like five minutes for uh, for that's, free. That's, uh, you, you, at that point, you hope it's not a slow-moving movie. You hope they get right to the action. But uh, it's weird to think of, you know, the lengths that you would go to see boobs back in the day. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, back in my day... <laughs> You know, for, for nostalgia, I will just Google uh, scrambled porn. <laughs> and then I'm like, man, this really takes me back. Yeah. Um, oh, and then we talked about uh, the DVD menu, which usually uh, I had a, a bit that I was working on about it. N- not even stand up, just kind of a, a standalone piece, but how I would I used to fall asleep to movies. And I always hated the DVDs that just looped the same audio yes over and over again because i would be half asleep at three in the morning and, and uh, no remote in sight and there's no way i'm gonna get up out of bed to turn it off so i'm just <laughs> listening to the grandma's boy dvd menu <laughs> audio over and over again yeah did, was that the one where the girl was singing push it over and over again i don't I don't remember that part, but I remember Rob Schneider throwing a bong and he would say, oh, was that expensive piece? Expensive piece? Yeah. <laughs> that weird thing where now that's not even, you know, we just talked about two things that aren't even scrambled porn. I, I assume that's not around anymore. And then uh, the DVD menu, it's kind of gone. Yeah, I mean... Uh... Every time you go to Best Buy or Walmart, like the the this DVD section's getting shrinks. smaller and smaller. Yeah, which now now there's not even a music section, and if it is, it is, it's vinyl records, which by all means that's great too. But 
you know, the I I go up and I see what the price of a CD now, and I just wish I could have been a teenager with you know with eight dollars as opposed to a twenty dollars for the the CD, you know. Oh yeah. Um, but l- let's let's get into the topic at hand. Well, any other th- thoughts on the SNL movies in general? Uh, the, the other one that a lot of people didn't like that I really really liked, and I think it was partially because of Dan Aykroyd, uh, was Coneheads. I thought there was a really good take on expanding kind of the universe that the mm-hmm. Coneheads would have lived in. Um, and then just all the little cameos that are people that popped up in that. I mean, Sinbad's in it. I mean, you know, he's got con- no connection really to SNL, but there was like, oh, yeah. shit, there's Sinbad. Like, well, and then we'll so. see that trend, you know, I guess starting uh, with the Blues Brothers. I just was looking at the cast and watching it last night. And, you know, the like you you probably seen it way more than I have, but this is one where you really stop and think of the who's who in this movie. And maybe at the time they weren't as popular, which we'll talk about. But this just the sheer cast, and I'm like, there's a legend. There's a legend. They're all dead. There's a legend. You know. <laughs> well, um, and there's some really good and hidden, like people who didn't have speaking roles. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of good hidden people in the Blues Brothers that if you're not really too hip to it there's going to be some good surprises there yeah well i'm looking forward to you telling me because that's why i like to have somebody like you on who can pick up the slack which there's going to be a lot (laughs) you know um i don't know i i I, we talked about it on the episode with isaac uh him and i but i still love the ladies man that's my favorite i think of all the snl movies still makes me laugh Tim, tim meadows is very underrated it's it's so weird because he's kind of that guy. He's one of those that guy from the thing type. Yep. Like Chris Parnell is kind of that way. Um, and then the, there was somebody else on this list of SNL. Even Molly Shannon. And you kind of like I just I would say oh she's from SNL but she's done a ton of other things. Oh yeah. Um, I, one of my favorite roles for Molly Shannon was in Talladega Nights. Oh. Where she plays like the wife of the the track owner, to, or I like the, to feel the vibration cartoon. shoot yeah. up my legs. <laughs> uh, and another that guy who I always think of Tim Meadows wise is his name's Phil Lamar, who was on uh, the the counterpart Mad TV. Oh, and, okay. And now I know he's done a a ton of voice work. He's Samurai Jack. Oh, okay. Um, he is Hermes on Futurama. So you probably heard his voice work, but I'm always like, that's that guy. And of course I know him because I like voice acting and stuff like that. But it's always funny to be like, oh, that's the end for, in this uh, movie, it was uh, Pee Wee Herman, Paul Rubens, who when I was a kid, I would, I was like, that's Pee Wee Herman. I didn't know he was allowed to be in other movies. (laughs) Like when I was a kid. (laughs) Um, So what's your overall uh, introduction or, you know, uh, on um, Blues Brothers? How did you come to see the movie? Um, well, I, I remember first catching it when they would show it on TBS as a kid, like over and over again. Um, and to, That was what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, and to give some perspective, um, my parents were divorced. And thanks for my bringing dad, that up. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Which uh, I, my dad moved to the other side of the country. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see him again until I was 12. And he, my parents got divorced when I was four. Yeah. So my mom told me 
oh, your dad really liked this movie. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it really made a connection since my dad wasn't there. So I, I was grasping onto anything that, mm-hmm. you know, had a connection to my dad. Now, fast forward. Now, I know this is this is going to be a little uh, weird for people to hear, but my parents got back together. Thanks for bringing that up. Thanks. For, thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> and uh, we ended up moving um, and, you know, so reconnecting with my dad, the Blues Brothers is one of those things that we bonded over. Mm-hmm. So he had the soundtrack on CD. He had the VHS tape. We probably watched it once a month on like a Saturday or a Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, and over, I, I can't tell you how many times I've watched this movie. Would you say it, over a hundred? I, I, I would venture to say yes. And I can't believe that I've watched it over a hundred times, but it, I are really, there any other movies you've seen that much? No, no. I mean, this is it, your may, one. Yeah. Maybe Lebowski. Yeah. You know, since I'm a dudist priest and all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the Church of the Latter-day Dude. Uh, far but, out, man. F- f- fucking far out, man. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, the Blues were... I, uh, sadly, I could probably start at the beginning of the dialogue and probably do the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And, That's... And, and, the ex- and the extended version, the special edition of the, the Blues Brothers which just came out, uh, it's been out maybe 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. Like, the stuff that they cut out, because it's such a long movie. That, that was my thoughts about, because I, I really love this movie, but then just in the age of, I gotta watch this movie for a podcast, as opposed <laughs> to just putting it on, uh, which is probably the wrong way to watch a movie. But, uh, you know, I was looking at, it was two hours, and on the DVD I have the the Blu-ray, because I've got that kind of money. Um, uh, it has the theatrical cut, and then it has the extended one, and I'm like, it's already at two hours. We yeah. don't we don't need more. I love this movie, but I'm, I'm good with not seeing more of it. I don't know how you feel. Uh, I actually prefer the extended cut. Oh, did you, you? I could tell you had your pinky up when you said that. That's right. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> um, it there's little it's just little scenes that they had to cut because it was too long yeah um but like they give you some background on you know where elwood worked mm-hmm. well um, please fill me in on that because uh, there's that scene where they're in the i don't the apartment building or whatever and he was like the guy's like you got my cheese whiz boy <laughs> right which uh that little background for me this movie was a tbs movie but I would watch it with my brother. Thanks for bringing him up. Um, and if you're just tuning into the podcast, as far as this is your first episode, my brother died. And I say that whenever I talk about my brother to be funny, it's not meant to be sad. So don't feel bad for me, but that's the running bit. So anytime something bad happens now, like Jason's parents getting uh, divorced or back together, that's the context, but I would watch it with my brother. So that was always just, you could walk into a room, no context needed, and just say, "You got my cheese whiz, boy." <laughs> so, did, what? What about the cheat? Did he work? He worked at a cheese whiz factory, right? No, no. What? No. So, that's what. <laughs> that's what I feel like. Somebody told me it was like that. Maybe that was the plan for the movie. Was that no, he was so, supposed to? 
working a cheese whiz fact. So you let me talk for about two minutes about nothing, and then you. But go ahead. So so when Carrie Fisher blows up their apartment building, yeah, and he goes, "It's almost nine o'clock. We got to go to work." <laughs> so he goes to work to quit, and it's it's in a it's a glue factory. Which factors in later on in the, the movie. Yeah. So, and he actually steals some of the cans and puts it in his briefcase. Yeah. But then he also steals another can of some stuff that you also find out later in the extended version. But they mm -hmm. cut that out of the whole movie. But he goes in and quits the factory and tells the guy, yeah, I'm going to quit and become a priest. <laughs> and, and the guy just looks at him and goes... Well, all right. And like and he gives him his final paycheck and he leaves. And that's yeah, the whole scene. That's a whole scene. But and it's 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 uh, really when you think about it, probably one of the only scenes in the movie where Ackroyd's by himself. Nobody else mm -hmm. is with him in those scenes. That that was weird because I did you a favor and after I watched Blues Brothers, uh I wanted to watch blues brothers 2000 mm -hmm. and i noticed because so i ended up did what i watched blues brothers 2000 which in hindsight i should have just done more research on this movie but <laughs> that was the thing i noticed in blues brothers 2000 was there were so many scenes within the first 20 minutes where it was just dan Aykroyd, and i really yeah. felt you know and not that i think he's terrible or anything i just it wasn't the same as having somebody else with them, whether it was John Belushi or somebody, anybody else, you know? Yeah, no. Um, yeah, I, I, I equate Blues Brothers 2000 to Highlander 2. It's better off. We just don't we don't talk about it. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because it just ruins so much stuff. Um, and that we'll talk about that later. But that was a, a sequel 18 years later, which there are, to me, very few sequels or the longer you wait, I'm like, maybe we shouldn't even just do this. You don't need to, when they announce a new sequel and you're like, I'm good. I don't stop touching the original. Oh yeah. Uh, so bad. So bad. Um, but you, any more about the, uh, the extended cut before we kind of jump into some numbers and stuff. Um, the extended cut has a, a scene where he parks the blues mobile in this very tiny electrical unit by the, uh, like it's a, like it's like a power station that mm -hmm. he parks it in. And he just has enough room to scoot this car in there. And then he has to climb out the window and then over the roof because I mean, it's got very low clearance. Mm -hmm. And supposedly, I guess in the screenplay, he wrote that that's where the blues mobile got its powers is from being parked in that power <laughs> station. It's so weird how this movie will play on like kind of, I don't know, real, a realistic type of feel. And then at the very end of the movie, they get out of the blues mobile and it literally just falls apart. Yep. So, like it, that's the thing I noticed about blues brothers 2000. I wasn't buying into the, to the, slapstick nonsense stuff as much as I should have because in Blues Brothers 2000 they get turned into like some voodoo uh, zombie things oh. by Erica Badu yeah. and and then 
and I was a kid when I first saw that movie. I saw it like uh, probably a year after it came out on you know on VHS. And even as a kid, I was like, "This is dumb," <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then I watched it as an adult. I'm like, I still agree. I was right. Um, but this movie came out uh, June twentieth, nineteen eighty, and they shot it in seventy nine. Uh, and uh, as we mentioned, it was a, it's a hundred and thirty three minutes. Um, the budget was uh, $30 million, and the supposed final budget was supposed to be $17.5 million. But it worked out because it ended up, ended up making $115 million total. So, And to put things in context, just the stuff I was reading about the this movie, they were like, this is one of the most expensive comedies, you know, probably at the time and maybe ever. But Animal House came out in 78. That budget was $3 million. Uh, vacation, a National Lampoon's Vacation, came out in '83. That was 15 million dollars, and Caddyshack came out the same year, 1980, with six million dollar budget. Well, yeah, and I mean, you're looking at probably Vacation. The most expensive thing there was probably Chevy Chase's salary, probably because of how, because of how popular he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and that's how we get a big budget with Blues Brothers because you you see all the stars that are in this, and you're like that, you know. And that was part of the problem we'll talk about here coming up. But that you know they wanted all these stars, but then they were like, "Come on, man, this is too much money," <laughs> you know. Um, directed by John Landis, and uh, I'm you know I know his movies, but when you look at the scope of the comedies ha- that he's been involved with. We have Kentucky Fried Movie, which I feel like you're a big fan. Of. I've never seen that before, but I know it's a sketch movie. Yep, that's that's a really... Um, I'd say that was Family Guy before Family Guy. Uh, okay. There's a lot of rapid fire mm-hmm. uh, switching back and forth of different things, yeah. Which, that's one of my favorite Family Guy scenes, is they'll, they just had the... Stewie was walking in somewhere, and the guy goes... You got my cheese whiz, boy. <laughs> like, <laughs> if you didn't know anything about Blues Brothers, you would just not get that joke. Yeah. Um, he also directed Animal House, of course, Blues Brothers, An American Werewolf in London, Trading Places, The Twilight Zone movie, The Thriller music video, Spies Like Us, Three Amigos, and Coming to America. Yeah, I mean, and those are all heavy hitters that I, for the I 80s. specifically picked out the heavy hitters, but come on, like... Just all those in general, you know? Yeah. And one of those is, a, I, you know, not the most horror of horror movies, but it's a horror movie. Right. You know? Um, so that's who, you know, we're dealing with as far as John Landis. Um, so any initial thoughts before I, I can go into the notes, but I feel like it's just better if we just talk. Yeah, that, whatever you want to do, man. Uh, okay, I'm going to take, take my top off. Uh <laughs> It's All not right, Burt Kreischer. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm the Burt Kreischer of podcasts. Uh, it earned just under five million dollars in its opening weekend, but went on to gross over 115 million dollars in theaters worldwide. Um, uh, and I we talked about how it's it had the uh, Blues Brothers 2018 years later. Of course, our cast is made up of John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, James Brown, Cab Calloway, Ray Charles, Carrie Fisher, Urethra Franklin, and Henry Gibson. And it, to me, Henry Gibson, the one, is the one that stands out to me because I'm not too familiar with his work, but I just know he's like the creepy doctor from The Burbs. 
So I I remember seeing him on uh, Nick at Night as a kid. They would show old reruns of Laughing. So that's that's where I remember. I was like, that guy's on that old show on Nickelodeon. <laughs> that's it's so weird how you can tell how old somebody is by what they watched on Nick at Night. Oh yeah, yeah, that was very early Nick at Night. Like because, yeah. when yeah. For me, it was I Love Lucy, um, and then it would go to, like, Happy Days, um, and then, what are the, it's, it's so weird how I like Three's Company, or to me, to me th- those are all, like, my parents' shows, you know, yeah. and I, and it was just, like, uh, it would go from cartoons to Nick at Night, and I was just bored out of my goddamn mind <laughs> with these well, shows. and I only got to watch Nick at Night when I went to another town, because my hometown in Indiana did not have Nickelodeon on their cable package. That's so weird. Right? Like, you just think automatically, mm-hmm. but like, Nickelodeon was not everywhere, and I remember being so excited when I go to my grandma's house on the weekend, and it was like, I get to watch Nickelodeon. Yeah, I get to watch cartoons past, you know, 9 o'clock in the morning. Or whatever. And now it's so weird. Can you imagine not being able to get what you want when you want? Right. <laughs> yeah, before it was like I had to wait to go to grandma's house. That's what I did. I went. I would stay at my aunt's house and they had, like, we had basic cable. But my aunt had, like, the the premium satellite package. Ooh. So that was, the like, the allure of half going to your aunt's who's going to spoil you. But also getting to watch all these. They would have, like, Nickelodeon, but then they would have, like... Retro Nick or whatever it was, so yeah. I got to see the extra stuff. Um, but the the back to the movie, uh, so just the plot points. We can talk about any scene, but just in general, the, the five thousand dollar tax bill for the orphanage. They got to reunite the band. There's a Carrie Fisher, the mystery woman, uh, the Illinois Nazis, the good old boys, and the police. There's so much stuff going on. Oh yeah, in this um, movie. This movie snowballs mm-hmm. like it just keeps going and adding more layers and layers. And that's what the I think the genius of the movie is, is that every time you watch it, you can definitely pick something else out that you're like, man, that adds so much. It's so layered. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, yeah, I, I, I love it. Watching this, I picked up on something Belushi said. I think it was the, one of the final scenes when they're driving, running from the police, and they're pulling into Chicago, and uh, and Elwood is points out a museum. I think it was, and then and Jake goes, "That's where the Picasso is." <laughs> yeah, the so, uh, Richard Daly Plaza, yeah, where it was like this guy uh, early in the movie was asking how much for your women, <laughs> and just being an animal, and that now he's like, "That's where the Picasso is." Such a great contrast. Yeah. Um, and then Carrie Fisher, did they in the the, the extended cut? Did they explain who she was? Because I've I felt like I've always known who she was in the movie, but they don't really explain that, do they? Up front. No, I mean until that final scene where they're in the the sewers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there there's no other explanation, and that's I to to quote our old friend Tim Wilson. When he talks about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's like, there's no explanation. It's just happening, and you got to deal with it. Like, yeah. that's how Carrie Fisher is in the movie. There's no explanation. 
but she's trying to kill the shit out of those guys. It's so it's great. It's so weird because it's like when I watch the Halloween franchise, which I talk about on this podcast all the time. So if you're a regular listener, I'm sorry, but you know in Halloween that Michael Myers is Laurie Strode's brother. Just from seeing the movies as a kid, this is the same thing where I know Carrie Fisher is trying to kill them because Jake left, uh, just left her standing at the altar. One, it's like I was grandfathered into this movie. <laughs> um, but to, just to talk about ba- talk about uh, the guy you just mentioned, Tim Wilson. If you're unfamiliar, is a, a comedian, Southern comedian. He's since uh, passed away. Thanks for bringing that up, but. Um, we just love to talk about Tim Wilson. Do you have a favorite Tim Wilson story? Oh man, uh, or a joke? Favorite joke? Because uh, well, my 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 favorite Tim Wilson story. Um, I had met him after a show here in Columbus, Ohio, and I was just such a big fan. And I I, I went up and talked to him, and he he said, "Yeah, I, I haven't been to Columbus in a long time." He said, the "Last time I was here, the Funny Bone." was at a Scooby-Doo mall. <laughs> and I was like, what is he talking about? And he's like, it was like this mall that was getting ready to close, and it looked like some kids were going to solve a mystery <laughs> in, in this mall. And I was like, yes, the continent, which was this big mall that was an open-air mall before that was like a concept that really mm-hmm. took off. And yeah, it was at its death rattle. And the only things that was keeping that place alive was the funny bone and there was a uh a country line dancing uh bar that tells you how long ago that was but yeah like it was that was the perfect description of something and it totally got me like i was like wow that was amazing like i had my own personal tim wilson yeah bit right there it was great and he's from where was he from georgia the inter- right the entertainment capital of the world columbus georgia <laughs> And he, I would pause this podcast and go just pull up Tim Wilson on Bob and Tom. What's the bit where he was like, they did, they did. What is, the, is oh, it? Bobby? With Bobby, Bobby Bowden. He, yeah. Bobby uh, the Bowden. Former, former coach of Florida state. <laughs> yeah. That's just, so good. He was really good uh, about impersonations and not necessarily people that you knew, but just types of people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but my, you brought up the Texas Chainsaw Massacre bit from from him, and my favorite joke that he had was uh, when I was a kid, we had the Texas Chainsaw Massacre scared the fuck out of us. You had to go over and pick up your fuck, <laughs> and just just that wording uh, has always stuck with me. But uh, his name's Tim Wilson. I don't know how we got sidetracked on that. Um, we they have to reunite the band, and uh, sometimes I'm a fan of this type of trope in a movie where they got to get the gang back together. Yep. But then, also in movies, I know the gang's getting back together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So it it does remind me of another SNL movie, MacGruber, where he has to get the gang back together, and then they just get blown up, which is a great twist on that trope. Sure. Um. I'm looking at the other, the good old boys, uh, and I have my favorite quotes, but the good old boys, uh, just you, you boys owe me a lot of money for that beer you drank tonight. God damn, God it. damn just, it. Just, just you throwing that God damn it at the end makes everything better. And then another quote from the same 
guy when he they're driving and he's got the glue on the on his on his foot. So that somehow the glue on the gas pedal makes it to where you can't pull back on the gas pedal. Yeah. Uh, but they're driving so fast and he just says, "God damn, boy." <laughs> I don't know why just those phrases are so funny to me. Um, my my favorite one from uh the guy who owns the bar, Bob from mm-hmm. Bob's Country Bunker. My favorite is they ask him they're like, "Hey, uh Bob, about the money for tonight." And he goes, "Oh, that's right. $200 <laughs> and you boys drank $300 worth of beer." <laughs> it's also that how many guys are in the band? Probably 7, 8. Yeah. Um they I don't is that is that a lot of beer? I imagine the three hundred dollars worth of beer. Well uh, in nineteen eighty? Yeah. 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 That Man. was a lot of beer. And th- but then some like none of them are drunk in the later scenes. No, no, they're stone sober. Yeah. Um is what are you what are some of your favorite scenes? Because that definitely is one of my favorite scenes in, in Bob's Country Bunker, just the it was supposedly they said Kokomo, yes, in the movie. So I don't know if because I think it's supposed to take place around Chicago, of course, but I don't know if that's Kokomo, Indiana. It it has to be because they said as as they're driving, they're like we've been in this car for over two hours, Jake. That's Where about is right. You know, that's about right to Kokomo from Chicago. Which that's it's. Uh, a significant place, you know, for me, that's where I met my, my wife. So we met in Kokomo and that's the only good thing that's ever happened in Kokomo for me. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that just that scene in general, cause they're, and I notice it more so in blues brothers, 2000, but like all these scenes are just to facilitate, to get to the next musical portion. Yep. Um, that one, I I love when Elwood's at the beginning at the bar and he asks the bar lady, what kind of music do you usually play here? <laughs> oh, we've got both kinds, country and western. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's such a great line. Such a great line. It's uh, The other thing that I love about that scene is Jake is really good about putting on that fake sincerity yes. where he's like, hey, Bob, we're the band. <laughs> I'm just like, man, and I've never been like a huge John Belushi fan. And that's just because I'm not, you know, he was a little before where I would have, you know, grown up watching aside from this movie. But I'm like, man, that's just really funny. And all he's doing is just being fake sincere, you know? Yeah. And, and if you go and watch that, he kind of puts a Southern twang (laughs) on his voice when he's talking to Bob and he's trying to fool him. Yeah. And that's yeah. the that's the weird thing is he's putting the southern twang, and I guess it makes sense for Bob. But they're in Kokomo, Indiana, which is an hour north of where I live now. <laughs> right. And to many people, I sound southern, but to many uh, northerners, I or no, many southerners, I sound like a northerner. So it's that right. weird Midwest type thing. Um, but. I mean, I got some background on the movie. They started, the start of the the movie was delayed uh, for, I think, about six months because Aykroyd, who had never written a screenplay or read one, according to what he said, uh, and then he couldn't find a writing partner, so he just started writing it, and uh, his final draft ended up being 324 pages, <laughs> which, you know, I think that 
this the rule of screenwriting and script writing in general is one page equals one minute. So that would have been a three hundred minute movie, you know. Yeah, way he too wanted long. to make Ben Hur the Blues <laughs> Brothers. Which I mean, for comedy wise, he did make Ben Hur because it's so yeah. long. <laughs> Um, but then that, and it wasn't even like a, in a script form. It was kind of like a, like a show Bible. So it's kind of very, um, descriptive bios for all the characters. And then John Landis took that and kind of formed it into a screenplay. So that's why they get a, uh, co-writing credits on there. So, and that, that part of him taking the 324 pages and make it into a script took about two weeks. Which that's a long. That's a long time. Yeah. Well, then you. It's it's all weird when you're you hear certain writers. They're like, yeah, I wrote Scream in a weekend, and <laughs> but then you're like, it took six months to write this, and then another two weeks to get it correct. Um, the the music cameos we mentioned before, but James Brown, Cab Calloway, Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, uh, Franklin. I said Franklin. Uh, Yoretha Franklin. Sorry, I said it wrong the whole time. Since most of uh, of them, except Char- Ray Charles, had any hits in recent years, the studio wanted the director, uh, Landis, of course, to replace them uh, or add performances by younger acts such as Rose Royce, whose uh, Car Wash song was uh, making the disco charts at the time. So they wanted to take a movie called The Blues Brothers and add a disco song into it. Right. Um, and the other one that is uh, in the extended version of the movie, there's a much longer scene with John Lee Hooker, which is the blues artist that's playing outside of the mm-hmm. Soul Cafe. That's the um, thing. Yeah, because I they don't they allude to it in that, but not there's not a full performance there. Yeah, um, but that extended version they they flesh it out some more. And then if you listen real closely at the end of that diner scene, when they open the door, you can hear an argument going on outside. Mm-hmm. And it's actually John Lee Hooker arguing with a guy about John Lee Hooker writing the song that he performed, Boom Boom. Okay. And they're going back and forth. So it's, it's weird. And none of, like, really, none of these singers are are bad actors. I don't think, I don't know how you feel about the performances. No. Um, I, I think, uh, <laughs> Matt guitar Murphy's a little stiff in that scene. <laughs> if you watch it, but, uh, but no, Aretha's great. The one that really surprises me is how good cab Calloway is. As yeah. Curtis. He's and, fantastic. And when, as a kid, I didn't even know he was a singer or anything. I just thought he was a guy, you know? Yeah. Um, um, and then, and then they talk about it for the movie. Um, he wanted to do like a disco version of many, the moocher, but Landis was like, no, you've got to do it straight up big band, mm-hmm. which was so smart because you've got one of the best horn sections around. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm glad Landis talked him into it and not doing a disco version <laughs> Of many of the moocher. Uh, so do you know a lot about the band, the backing band then? Yes. Um, so 
my two favorite guys that are in the, the in the band are Steve the Colonel Cropper and Donald Duck Dunn. Mm-hmm. Um, those are two members of Booker T and the MGs, mm-hmm. which um, basically Booker T and the MGs were the backing band for a lot of bands out of Memphis mm-hmm. at, on the Stax Records label. So you're talking Otis Redding, you're talking Sam and Dave, you're talking um, Isaac Hayes, uh, a lot of that. And plus, um, Booker T and the MGs uh, were famous in their own rights for um, Green Onions was the their big hit. Mm-hmm. Which um, So those guys are fantastic. Uh, the horn section... Uh, Tom Bones Malone, uh, Mr. Fabulous, Alan Rubin, and Blue Lou Marini. Um, they were in, I think, Earth, Wind, and Fire. I think that's right there. I have to Google it real quick. Keep talking. Yeah, but um, the ho- and I, th- I think maybe part of the Memphis Horns. I could be wrong on that, but like those guys were, you know, very world re- renowned. Plus. Uh, to back it up, they were the house band on Saturday Night Live. So, you know, and you got to look back at, you know, Saturday Night Live was such a revolutionary thing. Mm-hmm. And to have that powerful of a band behind them and then to move them all over, plus bring in Matt Guitar Murphy, who was a, a you know, an established blues guitarist mm-hmm. um, and the way that him and Cropper complement each other. And then Duck Dunn's one of my favorite bass players of all time. And if you listen to the movie and the way that they've got that mix compared to the soundtrack of the Blues Brothers, the bass is really good. And Duck Dunn's doing some really fun stuff on these songs. Mm-hmm. So for everybody who's listening, when you go and watch this movie, listen to the bass. Duck Dunn's really killing it on the bass. And he's usually in the background smoking his pipe and just back there just grooving. <laughs> and it's just so great. It's so great. Uh, for Blue Lou, um, I'm finding... Uh, I didn't see Earth, Wind, and Fire, but it said... it's Tower of Power. Could it have been blood, sweat, and tears? Blood, 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 sweat, and tears. Yep. Sorry. You had the right amount of earth, wind, and fire, and blood, sweat. You had the right <laughs> yeah, amount of yeah. things in the band's name, uh, and that's the thing. I didn't do much research on the band because I kind of knew that you knew, but there's only uh, so much research that I could have done. <laughs> before. Well, and then the other thing is, is um, Murph, mm-hmm. who was the leader of Murph and the Magic Tones. Yeah. Um, he wasn't supposed to be in the movie. It was originally cast as Paul or as a um, Paul Schaefer. Yeah, who um, I, I have a later fact that he he went to produce something else, and that's then uh, Aykroyd got mad at him for for doing that. So that's why he wasn't in. He got kicked out of the fictional band. Um, yeah, I the, the couple of things that I've read is that um, Lauren Michaels was kind of upset that Aykroyd and Belushi took the concept and made this movie. And he was pretty hand, he, like he didn't have a hand in the production of this mm-hmm. movie. And Paul wanted to be in the movie, but they were like, no, you got to come back and be the band director. Yeah. So, yeah, but yeah. Um, Who is, he's actually later uh, the, I guess the band leader for Erica Badu and blues brothers 2000. Yeah. 
because he was very over the top character, and I was like, I know this guy, but I don't. I had to Google it, and I was like, oh, it's Paul Schaefer. That totally makes sense. Yeah, and they gave him the nickname Paul the Shiv Schaefer. And why? Why is the Shiv? Uh, well, I I think they just gave everybody nicknames okay. that was in the in the band. I guess I mean when I think of the Shiv, I don't think of Paul Schaefer. But... No, no. <laughs> Um, uh, another section I've, I found was just the, the cars in general in this movie. And that's what I like about, uh, movies from the seventies. This came out in 80, but shot in 79. I love like a seventies era. I don't know what it is, whether it was the cameras or to me, I think there's a, the cars are square, yep. something about square cars and lots of real metal in a movie. Like in the diner, the diner scene with Euretha Franklin, uh, I'm gonna keep saying it and just <laughs> and pretend like it, that's her real name. But like, there's real metal everywhere, and there's something about that. I don't know, grainy '70s um, mixed with I don't know, real cars and real metal. Just it's that I don't know what it is, but certain movies from that era I just really like, just from the aesthetic, I guess. Oh yeah, and there's a. And there's a scene that I, I when I rewatched it the other night, I realized that for younger audiences, this terminology would be lost when Jake and Elle would get pulled over. And there, there's a it, it's a great scene in that they're driving and the music is playing and it's Sam and Dave soothe me. Mm -hmm. And the, the sound guy has queued up the music to play through this whole time. And when they're getting pulled over the lights on the the police cars behind him and Elwood goes shit Jake goes what and he goes shit what rollers really nope shit and it's all in the in the thing but rollers was slang for the the rolling lights on the top of the cop cars okay yeah that's not a thing anymore no no yeah, that's so, it's so weird that how the the weird slang was probably that's you know that's i don't know if it's the popo now you know where it's like because even then saying popo now i'm like that doesn't really sound you know five five o is kind of the same thing but rollers right. you know yeah. uh that's a that's a an a jason nicholson uber fact <laughs> uh and this movie the cars uh most cars destroyed in the course of a production uh, for 18 years, and that was at 103, and that was only broken later by Blues Brothers 2000 with 104 cars, and uh, Blues Brothers 2000, of course, came out in the year 1998. Uh, and then that was broken uh, with 112 cars by G.I. Joe, uh, The Rise of Cobra. So to me, that is the third sequel spiritually of the blues brothers <laughs> which is probably a better sequel than blues brothers 2000 yes um the film used uh 13 different cars bought at auction from the california highway patrol to depict the retired 1974 mount prospect illinois dodge monaco patrol car the vehicles were outfitted by the studio to do particular driving chores some of them were customized for speed, others for jumps, depending on the scene. For the large car chases, filmmakers purchased 60 police cars at $400 each 
and most were destroyed at the completion of the filming. More than 40 stunt drivers were hired, and the crew uh, kept a 24-hour body shop on hand. And and they all needed to have the cigarette lighter fixed. <laughs> that that's and by the way, that is could be the longest first scene of any movie of Jake getting out of prison till they even get to the orphanage. It's like twenty oh, minutes. Yeah, um, and that shot, Landis should be. He should have won an Oscar just for the shot of Jake coming out of the prison with the light shining, the sun coming through that gate Mm -hmm. so bright, and he's walking out of there. It's a beautiful piece of cinema, Mm -hmm. and I can't imagine walking into the theater not knowing anything other than it's this movie about the characters that were barely on Saturday Night Live, (laughs) and then going, what What are we we watching? There's Like, like true cinema in this movie. But also at the same time, how much for your women? <laughs> right. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, oh, yeah, they bought all these police cars for $400 each, and I just found it weird in Blues Brothers 2000. Jake buys a police car for $500 from B.B. King. Turns out yep. to be B.B. King later. But in my mind, I mean, maybe it's for inflation, but maybe back in 1998, I would have just assumed a $500 car was a piece of shit, just like yeah. it is today, and they're driving all over the country. I wouldn't drive to the next state in a $500 car. Well, uh, you know, that's why he parked that into that, uh, the, you know, the, exp- <laughs> the electric <laughs> thing. That's yeah, how it got its power. That's, that's so how it's dumb got of me. You're right. I should have just watched the extended cut, Jason. Um... And we have uh, other cameos. And, uh, we, uh, so we, we talked about Carrie Fisher. We have uh, Kathleen Freeman as the nun. But we also didn't even talk about John Candy. Yeah, uh, Sergeant Mercer. So, and what's your Twitter bio right now? Or was it? Was uh, it the Orange Whip? Oh, Orange Whip? Orange Whip? <laughs> orange Whip? Three Orange Whips. What, did, do you know what an Orange Whip is? So, uh, apparently that was like a hot drink in the Chicago area of that time. Okay. Um, and apparently if you're in Chicago, there's still certain bars that, uh, serve the orange whip. Um, to me, I always thought he was like ordering candy. Yeah. But yeah, it's a, it's a cocktail. Uh, an orange whip is a sweet cocktail made with rum, vodka, cream, and orange juice. It is typically blended to a froth, like a milkshake. And it's poured over ice and a Collins glass. So I just like that this cop was there to arrest him. And he was like, you want to drink? You want to start <laughs> drinking? Let's drink. <laughs> uh, yeah, as a, as a kid, just I just learned what an orange whip was. Uh, but yeah, so what a, a great you know comedic actor. And he's only in the movie, what, you know, eight minutes total? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um... And I think that's the the cool thing. I think, like, if you watch this one, like, some of the, like, watching Wedding Crashers now and seeing, like, the little people that are in that, and you're Mm -hmm. like, that guy wasn't even a star yet. Like, when you watch Wedding Crashers, you're like, what is Bradley Cooper doing in this movie? Like, (laughs) he's a big-time star, you know? Yeah. So they got so many people before they were big for other things. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then here's some other cameos. Some of them I know and some of them I don't know. Uh, Steve Lawrence as the booking agent. Twiggy, who I kind of felt like she was somebody. Do you know Twiggy at all? Uh, she's a UK model. That was yeah. like a, a big deal for them to have her in the movie. And who pays $90 for <laughs> gas. <laughs> Just what an outlet. Nowadays, $90 is a lot for gas. Uh, I didn't know this. Steven uh, Spielberg as the Cook County Assessor's Clerk. I didn't know that was him. Yep, yep. Uh, John Landis as the state trooper in the mall. And that was, I need to find my phone. It's one of my favorite scenes, but I was watching with my wife. And we were talking about all the stores that we could identify that are now out of business in that mall. So we had JCPenney. Uh, yep. Jewel, which I think is out of business. I've never seen no, anyone, any of those. Yep, they've, they're, the Jewel Oscos are still open in Chicago. Oh, I see. I've, okay, I know Osco, but I didn't know Jewel. Uh, Toys R Us now. Yep. Um, and then I wrote down Oldsmobile, and just because you don't see any, like, cars and malls as far as, like, a dealership unless it's Tesla now, I guess, you know? Yep. Um... Pier one imports. Yeah, that one I that was next on the list, so it just filed for bankruptcy and then uh I was it Bugsy Bugsy's and Krugers? I my phone auto corrected now it says Bugs and Krugers, but I don't remember <laughs> what that was. But yeah, all those stores and then they like wrecked into the uh record store. Just I, w- I was talking to my wife just to, I was like, Man, if I could just go back and walk through those stores now. Oh yeah. Okay. yeah real nostalgic well, trip and my my other favorite is when he's sitting there driving and he goes disco pants and haircuts <laughs> lots of space in this mall <laughs> can, can you imagine like obviously it was on a you know it was a real mall but a closed set but just being in the mall and seeing a car drive through well and go back and watch those scenes there is some really close calls <laughs> with some people like moving out of the way just at the last moment uh, and ju- just the fact, like, you know what, if you do, you know, when you do like donuts in somebody's yard, that's called a yard job. Yeah. Like, let me, you guys want to go do some mall driving? Well, and then there's a great running gag where at the end, when the cars flipped over and the cops cars flipped over, and he goes, they broke my watch. I <laughs> <laughs> saw this damage and he's like, they broke my watch. My watch. And then, la- and then later on. Uh, in the big car chase scene, when all these cars are on the highway and they're all getting out of their cars after the wreck, you can hear the guy go, they broke my watch. <laughs> Just like that little, like, only somebody, you know, 40 years later, what, whatever, would be like, oh, you remember that watch bit in <laughs> Blues Brothers? Yeah. Um, and I have a lot about the drug use on it. So this is a lot of words. So, you know, I'll, st- I'll stop uh, when I've read too many words. But in the next month, the production began failing uh, behind uh, falling behind schedule. Rather much uh, of the delay was due to Belushi's partying. Uh, people often recognized him and, and slip would slip him cocaine just so they could get a Belushi story, which he was already on coke. But then they were like, let's give you more. Right. Uh, as a result of this late nights and uh, as a result of uh, his late nights and drug and alcohol use, Belushi would often miss unit calls, which is like a meeting at the beginning of a uh, production day. 
uh, and or he would just go to his trailer and sleep afterwards, wasting hours of production. One night, Aykroyd found him crashing on the sofa of a nearby house where Belushi had already helped himself to food and the refrigerator. So, if you know, at the time, he was one of the biggest stars, having just come off of Animal House and being on SNL. Can you imagine just waking up and seeing John Belushi in your refrigerator? Well, and then, like, then you see Dan Aykroyd pop up and, like, <laughs> hey, that's both of them. What are you guys doing? <laughs> well, was... and, and then you look, I mean, this is Belushi at the height of his powers, but then he's also dating Carrie Fisher, mm-hmm. who's at the height of her powers. I mean, in, I think... I think it's the in eighty, like it's Empire Strikes Back. Was that? Oh, hold on. Was Carrie dating Aykroyd or Belushi? I thought you said Belushi. Belushi. Bel- okay. Belushi. Okay. Yeah, and he and Belushi's actually still married. Oh, oof. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. So, but yeah, I mean, you've got two of the most powerful people, mm-hmm. probably in all of Hollywood, just out of their mind. Yeah, like, looking through your fridge. Yeah, <laughs> and then Carrie Fisher walked in, and then and then Cab Calloway was there for some reason. Yeah. Now, now we're just describing somebody's dream. <laughs> well, no, and then uh, no, it's Chunk from Goonies. It's like, <laughs> well, what, yeah, no, Michael Jackson used, and then Michael Jackson came in and used the bathroom. Then the Gopher <laughs> from Caddyshack. Uh, where was I? Uh, oh, yeah. So help them. And uh, the other one of the other stories was that Belushi would just hail police cars like cabs and they would be like, hey, Belushi, because it was Chicago. And he would just get in the back of the car, probably fucked up, most <laughs> likely. And then they would take him home. That's how big of a star. That's like if, you know, I don't know, Tom Hanks. I don't, he's not known for drinking, but if he was on meth and they were like, yeah, we'll take you home, Tom. Right. Yeah. Uh, this episode is going to be called Methed Up Tom Hanks. Uh, cocaine was already so prevalent on the set um, that Aykroyd, who used far less uh, than his partner, so still on cocaine, uh, claims uh, a section of the budget was actually set aside for purchases of the drug during night shooting. The stars had a private bar, the Blues Club, built on the set for themselves, crew and friends. Um, and then... At one point, Landis found Belushi with what he described as, this is air quotes, a mountain of cocaine <laughs> on a table in his trailer, which led to a tearful confrontation in which Belushi admitted his addiction, which it's, that is sad, but it's also really funny that it takes getting caught with a mountain of cocaine to be like, okay, I might have a problem. Well, and then I wonder what runs through Belushi's mind because you you look at him doing all that cocaine and he's still chubby, but then you look at Aykroyd, who is skinny as all get out, doing well, cocaine. So it must have had some type of effect that he had to eat a lot while he was on cocaine. I mean, I think some people are going to be fat in general, but he, <laughs> you know, only one guy was found raiding the fridge of a na- nearby house. Well, if you watch Blues Brothers 2000, uh, Aykroyd has put on quite a bit of weight compared to what he was That's in, true. The, in the original one. Uh, well, he still looks skinny compared to uh, John Goodman. 
Yeah, you're right. Who I think is a Finn. fantastic actor, and I yeah, could say John I'm because fa- I'm fat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just before shooting the concert scene, Belushi fell off his skateboard and uh, injured his knee, making it unlikely he could go through with the scene. He's got to do cartwheels and dance and sing. Uh, somebody talked L.A.'s top orthopedic surgeon into uh, postponing his weekend plans so he could uh, anesthesiize, I think that is the word, he gave him anesthesia, Jason, uh, to his knee so he could film that scene. So in hindsight, when you look back, some of those scenes, especially like in the church when he's doing the backflips and stuff, I think is a stunt double. But then sometimes it doesn't cut, so I'm like, he's really doing some of these very, I guess, very athletic for a fat guy on cocaine type scenes. <laughs> well, th- there is the one uh, when they're in the back of the church. You can tell that's Belushi doing a cartwheel. That's not Belushi <laughs> doing the backflips down the aisle <laughs> yeah. of the, the church. But yeah. The other thing that I wanted to point out about these movies as far as that 70s look and feel and the everything had corners uh, in these movies... I don't know. It's something about people when they sweat. It really, you could really see the sweat. Somebody is sweating, oh. and that's Belushi. And a lot of these movies, I don't know. It's something about when you see sweat on somebody, it kind of takes you out of that Hollywood thing, and you're like, this is more real than today's movies where nobody's ever sweaty. Well, and especially that scene, because James Brown <laughs> looks sweaty as all get out when he's up there on the, on the stage. But then it adds to the whole thing of the church. Like, there's people in there with their fans mm-hmm. and um, the ridiculousness of of that scene where you've got the people doing giant backflips all the way up, like, the side of the wall that <laughs> uh, they're doing the flips and stuff. Uh, the other little hidden gem in that scene uh, in the choir is Shaka Khan. That was, yeah, one of the things. I, I think I forgot yeah. to mention her, but... So weird, like she's just in there, you know, yeah, in the just, scene. Yeah, just there's Shaka Khan. Doesn't yeah. say a word. She does like a little solo singing, like a barely like three note solo. Yeah, but yeah, there's Shaka Khan. Also, and she's a big, big enough celebrity. And then you add on James Brown on top yeah. of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that was all the notes. I have some kind of like you, you know things you didn't know about the movie. Any other thoughts? Any Did you have a scene that stood out to you that you loved or a performance in the movie? Um, like I said, with Duck Dunn, he's, he's a great bass player, but he has two of my favorite lines in the movie. Mm-hmm. The first one is when Jake's trying to convince them to join the Blues Brothers again. Mm-hmm. And he goes, Jake ain't lying, though. We had a band powerful enough to tow her and go piss into gasoline. shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's such a great line and it was like who decided that duck dunn gets to have such a great line yeah and then the other one is outside of bob's country bunker when they're trying to figure out if they want to stay with the blues brothers and duck dunn goes if the shit fits wear it move over (laughs) god damn it (laughs) if the shit fits and that's the other thing i like about this movie and then even in blues brothers 2000 they're just going on road trips with people like eight guys in a car with no gig. Yeah. They're just driving. What kind of asshole is just like <laughs> tricks their friends into getting back together. But also let's just go on a road trip where everybody's crammed in one car for a maybe gig. Yeah. 
the the other one that I love is Charles Napier, who is um oh uh, Tucker McElroy. Mm-hmm. When he gets out of it, he goes, "Yep, I'm I'm the I'm Tucker Morell McElroy, lead singer, driver of the Winnebago." <laughs> <laughs> and then Jake's confronting him, and he's like, "How about you let us go in there and just play without permits, huh, Stein?" You're gonna look pretty funny trying to eat corn on the cob with no fucking teeth. And, <laughs> that's my other favorite quote because he, you're gonna look pretty uh, funny eating corn out of the cob, and then he like lowers yeah, it and he's like yeah, with he no fucking teeth. <laughs> Which I love. I love Charles Napier. He's a just a character actor that appeared in all sorts of stuff. Um. He was a personal friend of Russ Meyer, which that's an obscure B movie, the king of the B independent movies of the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, but then if you go and watch another movie called The Goods with Jeremy Piven. I've seen that Charles, one, yeah. Charles Napier is in that one, and he has some scenes that are absolutely, he just steals the movie, in mm-hmm. my opinion. So I, I love Charles Napier, like... Uh, a perfect heavy, as the industry would say That's, in movies. Yeah. <laughs> With no fucking teeth. <laughs> uh, we talked about uh, Paul Schaefer getting kicked out of the band. Uh, apparently, John Belushi was paid twice as much as Dan Aykroyd. So Belushi made half a million dollars for his work in the movie, and Aykroyd made two fifty. So I don't know if that if that's also lumped in with writing the movie, but. You know, that goes to show you how big John Belushi was to make a half million dollars for this movie. So then you you see why the, you know, all the celebrities in this movie, all the cars they had to wreck, Belushi's salary, uh, cocaine apparently was on the payroll. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. Uh, the prison scene turned, in, turned violent when Jake is released from prison at the start of the movie. A helicopter crew was used to film overhead shots. The prison's uh, guards actually opened fire on the chopper, thinking it was some kind of escape attempt. Well, and that's that's another... Do you have the hidden gem in the performance of the, the prison scene at the end of the movie? Uh, Joe Walsh was in yeah. there, right? Yeah. yeah, Joe Walsh is one of the prisoners. It's so weird, because I, I was watching that scene, I'm like, maybe they... How many of these are extras, and how many of these are, like, hired dancers like let's let me give like a dancer on each table and then we'll just have extras filling in the rest of the scene because there are some people that are really getting into it yeah and and the extended version has a longer version of of that performance okay it's also weird that the band went to prison with them they're accessories i i guess so um, the, the crew nicknamed, uh, Belushi, the black hole. Uh, he, uh, he was known for losing his sunglasses in between takes and went through hundreds of pairs during the shoot. So, I mean, just being, I guess, apparently coked out of your mind really, uh, makes you forgetful. Well, and, and speaking of the sunglasses, that opening scene where he's getting the, uh, his stuff out of prophylactic. Uh, yeah, the, the one un one unused prophylactic, <laughs> one soiled, <laughs> and 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 do you know who that actor was? I do have it, uh, Frank Oz. Frank Oz, yeah, uh, Miss Piggy, re- I, and Yoda. I can remember my dad as I'm watching it. He's like, "Do you know who that guy is?" And I'm like, "No, <laughs> I'm like 12. and he's like, 
close your eyes. Let me rewind it, and you can listen to it again. And then I was like, it sounds like Fozzie. And he's like, yeah, it's Frank Oz. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, So, yeah. Um, yeah, and that, that's why I, I told uh, my wife the same thing about, I was like, all right, who do you think that is? And, I, and then I was like, yeah, it's the, from the Muppets. It just think of any Muppet. Not, you know, not all of them. Obviously, you hear that, just that, I don't know what it is, the... Like that kind of in the voice type thing. Um, we talked about Paul Rubens. Um, and I just had some favorite quotes because you just gave me some. But um, I already said how much for the Weeman. Uh, and the other one that I will just say is, this is glue. Strong, Strong stuff. stuff. So then it all comes around that he worked at a glue factory. It just... It, I guess a scene that didn't need to happen because I've never questioned where he got the glue from. (laughs) Um, And then the other one is my favorite is makes me laugh every time I see it. When Jake and Elwood walk into the apartment building or whatever it is. And they talk to the guy behind the desk, Sam or uh, yeah. Yeah. And he's like, this is a Jake. He's going to be staying with me for a while. I don't know. But the scene just ends with the guy going, Nah, okay. <laughs> so if you've watched this movie before this podcast, uh it's it'll still be funny, but after after this, just go watch this movie and keep in mind that scene where the guy's just like, nah, okay. That was another like quotable from, you know, my brother and I. Just we just no context, just be like, nah, okay. <laughs> yeah, um there's and there's a phrase that's from this movie that has become part of my vocabulary specifically because of the movie. And it's when the scene with the fat penguin Oh and and they're going back and forth and he tells her, you know, well then I guess you're really up shit Creek (laughs) and she's, she's beating him. And when Elwood says, fuck this noise, man, like, (laughs) I don't know why, but that's always stuck with me. And I will say it all. I'll go, fuck this noise, man. And that's <laughs> and that's exactly where it's from. Yeah, no, like, and that, I'll do that with, like, Back to the Future. I'll just say, hey, you, get your damn hands off her. And, like, most people won't even know what that is or, you know, but it's just for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, any other thought? Because I've gone through all my stuff. What it, I know you took notes on as well. So anything that we didn't talk about? Yeah, um... One of the things that I remember watching, and I'm a Cubs fan, and I had never been to Wrigley Field, mm-hmm. but when the Illinois Nazis pull up to the front <laughs> of Wrigley Field, it makes it look like there's a giant parking lot in front of Wrigley Field. If you go to Wrigley Field, the entrance where they're standing is right there on the sidewalk. But the Illinois Nazis pull four cars right up on the sidewalk <laughs> and park right in front of Wrigley Field. Like, I, it's so hilarious when you actually, like, that was the only frame of reference mm-hmm. that I really had. Yeah. And then to actually go, and it was like, good God, man, you pulled these right <laughs> up there. Like, it was, I, I really enjoyed, like, little stuff like that that's, mm-hmm. that's in there that you pick up. Um that and that's the we barely even talked about the Nazis in this movie. That's how much is in this movie. My other favorite thing is anytime, and it has to do with like the the Nazi chase scene. But 
anytime there's like a, a, a hole in the road and that you'll see the car going towards the hole and then it'll, it'll come down from an obvious ramp that wasn't there. Like somehow the car was almost going to hit the hole and then jumped over the hole or just a car falling from the sky. It's just really where it's like that, that like this movie toes the line between I'm buying it as a, like a, not a slapstick comedy, but it's, it's in it's realism, but it's also not at the same time. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to mention was, um, you know, as good as the band was, they put out an album before the movie came out, and mm-hmm. it was it it topped the charts and went double platinum. And I mean, I'm sure that helped push along to actually get the movie made that they mm-hmm. had a number one album. But they actually recorded that live, and the band opened up for Steve Martin in Los Angeles. That's a weird. So, and Steve Martin was just doing stand-up, right? Yeah, like the the guy with the banjo and yeah. the arrow through his head and all that stuff. Well, I just you know, know now he'll he'll just do music, but just at a at a time I've you know I've opened for bands and that is hard. But I can't imagine following the energy of a band, and then you're oh. coming out in a Colonel Sanders white suit. <laughs> just right? you. It's just you. That's well, yes. the show. You know. It's probably like, how am I supposed to follow that? Like, this mm-hmm. was a mistake. There like, was on that one of those Eddie Murphy specials. He comes out, and I can't. T- I think it's the one where he's wearing red. I don't remember which one that is, but he's like, "Give it up for the whatever band it was." I don't remember, but just in my head, I'm like, "This dude followed a band. <laughs> he brought closers with him to open yeah. up." <laughs> But yeah, uh, so the Blues Brothers, they ended up doing three albums, mm-hmm. uh, Briefcase Full of Blues, then the soundtrack, and then Made in America, and then they did like a Greatest Hits album that they did. But I, it's pretty impressive that, you know, they ended up putting this all together, uh, you know, probably just on a whim to like, you know, hey, we got all these great musicians here, let's do something with this. And on Coke, surely on hey, Coke. Yeah, uh, surely on Coke. <laughs> Um, so the other thing that I read that I thought was really interesting and I didn't put two and two together was that apparently there was an article in Rolling Stone that claimed that they were whitewashing soul music. Okay. That they, that they accused, um, you know, the whole Blues Brothers thing, which uh, if you read, um, like you said, other than Ray Charles, who had had a couple of recent hits, um, the people that are in this movie with Aretha and James Brown, their careers were kind of on the downslide. Mm-hmm. And, and they that's the thing in context that you don't know, because I didn't see it in theaters. I wasn't alive, you know, and right. so I didn't. To me, they're all big stars, but go ahead. Yeah, so, um, and they've all went back and, like, thanked uh, Dan Aykroyd for, you know, putting them in this movie and like Landis for fighting to keep them in the movie that mm-hmm. they, that they should be celebrated. But then I, I thought it was ironic that, um, that the guy from Rolling Stone would say that with Steve Cro- Cropper and Duck Dunn were all on Stax records, which 
it was a predominantly um, African American label, mm-hmm. but they were the backing band, and they were from those neighborhoods in Memphis. They all lived in the same area, mm-hmm. so I thought it was. Uh, I, I got kind of what they were saying, but it's like, well, those guys have they were they were in it, like they were pioneers, like they helped push that movie along or the the music along, mm-hmm. like. Yeah, they're white, but like they've got credentials. Out, yeah, yeah, it's you know, it, better than anybody. Was I, you know, to me, what it sounds like is they didn't come in at the eleventh hour and were like, "Hey, let's do this thing," you know, which definitely right. you could say about other artists too. And you know, I, I think I didn't read the article, but to me, it sounds like the guy could have used that effort to go somewhere else with that kind of, you know. Yeah, and I don't think that I don't think there was any malice from mm-hmm. Belushi and and Ackroyd. Um, I think that they they used their power to spotlight these artists that had kind of been forgotten about. Mm-hmm. Which I mean, when you're looking at this, this is '79. You know, Booker T and the MGs. That's '63, '64 around that time. You know, along with uh, Aretha and James Brown, I mean, when you look how long those people have been around, like, it's kind of crazy to think, like, in today's standards, like, trying to think back of somebody from, like, 2005 mm-hmm. that that we would be referenced to and go, well, that, those guys are really good. Like, they should still be recognized for what they did 15 years ago. I'm, I'm... But... But yeah, I mean, uh, but it really shows that, because I mean, I couldn't really think anybody from 2005 that's been forgotten that should be really be lifted up. I, I googled 2005 musical artists, so some of these are really big names, but to me, like, currently, in 2020, like, that'd be like if you put Fallout Boy <laughs> in your movie... It'd be like if you put the Pussycat Dolls, um, <laughs> even Nickelback, Akon, Lifehouse, The Killers, and some of these, you know, obviously then it'll say like Jennifer Lopez, who is still around, or Shakira. Right. They just did the ha- the Super Bowl halftime show. But to, yeah, to put it in context, um, you know, Maroon 5 or Alicia Keys, who some of the, I'm just saying some of these aren't the hottest thing right now. <laughs> no, but but then you look at what, that movie did. I mean, Aretha went on to record uh, "Freeway of Love," mm-hmm. um, and that was like a, a big hit. Um, she sang at WrestleMania, uh, "America the Beautiful." Yep. Um, Pinnacle and then of you, her career, by the way. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Doesn't get much better than that. Um, and then you look at James Brown. Goes on to do what Rocky Four with "Living in America." Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, it just revitalized their careers. Yeah. Well, um, especially then you get that TBS replay. Like, right. I I know who they are because of that movie. You know. Right. And um, like John Lee Hooker, like that's how I learned about who he was. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, as a teenager, I I dived into the blues and. Um, he's my favorite. Like Mm -hmm. there's the other people that are out there. Like I'm not a big BB King fan. Uh, I'm, if I'm going to pick a King, it would be Albert King for me. 
But I go back to that Delta Blues that John Lee Hooker did, and it's because of that movie. I would have not known who John Lee Hooker was. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that they really did a good job. And, and again, like like I've done here, I rattled off all the guys' names that are in the band of the Blues Brothers. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's it's really it's an impressionable movie. And it really lifted those guys. So, well, yeah, I, and, and for the genre in itself, as you know, right? I would, you know, as a kid, I don't even, I couldn't even have told you a blues artist. Yeah, you know, I could have told you a rock artist, and you know, if I'm say, if I'm saying Blues Brothers are my favorite blues artist, that's not saying much. But you know, at least it, like you, it was the, it was the gateway to all those others. Yeah. And not even blues, um, but soul and R and B, you know? Yeah. And I mean, realistically, the Booker T and the MGs is what brought me to Stax records and me discovering all the great artists that came out of Stax out of Memphis. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's when people talk about soul R and B music and people will talk about Motown and then they'll ask me what I like, and I'm like, Stax Records. And they just look at me, they're like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, you haven't explored real soul music mm-hmm. unless you've ex- explored Stax Records. Which, this past year, I went to the Stax Records Museum in, in Memphis, mm-hmm. and there is a bunch of stuff that's been donated by Steve Cropper and Duck Dunn, but there is actually Blues Brothers... Uh, like touring kits that were in the Stax Museum. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and I was like, yes, like this thing was much bigger than the Blues Brothers, but mm-hmm. it was cool that they recognized, hey, the Blues Brothers shined a lot of light on a lot of these artists. Let's mm-hmm. let's give a little back. So that's so, cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to to play Jerry Springer, uh, Jason. Final thoughts. <laughs> um. I, Again, like, there's so much of this movie that is really woven into the fabric of who I am. Yeah. Um, And I think it was one of the first movies that I realized that if you absorb all that information and you quote something, you can find a friend out there in the universe that knows that movie, Mm -hmm. and then you can make that connection with somebody. So I, 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 it really holds a special place in my heart. It's a written, unwritten language of, you know, if you, you know, dr- just drop a quote and maybe nobody will get it but the one guy and you're like, that that's it, you know. Yep. Um, well, cool, man. Anything? I mean, I, I think you're like me. You don't have any upcoming shows due to COVID. <laughs> <laughs> but, again, you're not a comedian, so why would you have shows? Anything you want to promote or talk about? Any what are you uh, reading to reading or listening or watching to currently that you would recommend? Um. Well, I'm I'm reading some uh, old science fiction fantasy novels from okay. Michael Michael Moorcock, uh, Elric. Michael Moorcock was my uh, my <laughs> porn name, by the way. <laughs> I thought, I thought it was going to be your ma- magician name. Uh, my It was Michael Moorcock, and my movie was Fahrenheit 9 to 11 inches. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, try to think if uh, obviously go check out Stacks Records. Yep, Stacks uh, Records. Uh, I will say I've got two uh, artists, new artists that are out there that are doing classic country and western swing. Mm-hmm. One of them would be Kyle Elridge. Uh, he's a guy that's based out of Louisville. Uh, go check out his music. Uh, the guy is a virtuoso on guitar and has kind of been anointed as the new uh, person that's going to take Western swing and rockabilly music into the future. Uh, Reverend Horton Heat sings his praises all the time, along with uh, Deke Dickerson, who's another guy that's really good. Uh, and then another country artist that I discovered at the Ameripolitan Awards in Memphis. Uh, his name's Jesse Daniel. Uh Really good, classic country sound. Um, His new album is doing really well out there, which is uh, great to see in the COVID era because, uh, you know, those guys can't tour, uh, which is where you make the majority of your money being out there as a small artist. Yes, sir. Uh, So uh, I would say anytime that you see any of these guys doing live streams and asking for tips or anything, uh, you know, these guys are really working hard to try to continue to give uh, good content out there for you. So if you can, um, and, and the same thing goes with stand-up comedians, uh, yes. support their Patreons, <laughs> stuff like that, um, cameos. Yes. Uh, I'll, ye- I'll yell at you and your family. <laughs> <laughs> so it, uh, it's, it's a really hard time for artists and uh, – really don't know when this stuff's going to return back to normal so yeah. I, I if there's somebody out there that you really like support those people that's why i give those two guys a big plug there because i like what they're doing i believe what they're doing and they're they're just regular working folks that are really trying hard to make something of it so cool man and i enjoyed uh having you on maybe i would maybe we'll have you i'll have to talk to the the crew the rest of the crew on the show which is me, uh, and because you and I went to Lebowski Fest, maybe the next thing you and I will talk about is Lebowski. Yeah, I'd love to. Cool. Thanks for being on the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me, Brent. Hey, thanks again for listening to the podcast. If you could just do me a quick favor, whatever platform you listen to the field trip on, just give me a positive review for the show. If you don't mind, and if you could tell a friend about the show, that would be even better. If you want to know more about me, brentcomedy.com is the website and updated tour schedules over there, uh, links to social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can pick up your emotional support beer koozies over there. And if you want a shirt that I've been wearing in one of my videos, go to teespring.com and search for Brent Terhune. All that stuff is right there on the website. So thank you again for listening, and we'll see you on the next field trip.